Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next installment of the podcast series. Today on the show, I welcome Hugh Gilmore. Hugh is a motivational interview trainer, MI, and a rational emotive behavior therapist, REBT. He has more than a decade of providing sports psychology support for Olympic and Paralympic athletes with their coaches and their multidisciplinary teams working at the Rio and Tokyo Olympics, as well as currently working with the British IOC. Today, we go really deep with a few key topics and have an honest and open conversation around the mind and psychology. Hugh holds no punches and is a very big believer and practitioner when it comes to critical thinking. He dispels all the modern fluff around sports psychology, and I think you will really love his honest and candid approach to topics, and he leaves no stone unturned. He has some free content on his YouTube channel when it comes to courses on critical thinking. If anyone is interested, please do go and check it out. We discuss how to help athletes that may be self-sabotaging in the moment of competition, and how to use certain tools in order to attempt to deal with this. We also discuss what he views as the best habits of high performers and offer some wonderful advice towards the end of the show, so be sure to listen right to the end. We also go down a little rabbit hole with Stoicism and how the ancient thinkers can arm us with tools for the modern world and how also visualization plays a part in an athlete's development, but not what you may think of as visualization what you have heard before. You can follow Hugh on Instagram and YouTube and he is putting some very interesting and thought-provoking stuff out there. Please do pass on and share the show with those that may be interested to hear about the topics we discussed today, and please enjoy. Hugh Gilmore, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. I'm really delighted to have you on the show today, my man. Um, Listen, I think a good place to start would be for you to give a brief intro to yourself, what you're currently getting up to in the world, and anything that's giving you energy right now. Um, Well... I suppose to intro myself, I'm a performance psychologist. I've spent the last 10 years working with Olympic and Paralympic athletes and supporting world champions. And I have been a coach for 
well, I started coaching when I was 16. I'm nearly 40. Um, and I'm a coach in two different sports. Uh, and I also work as a coach developer with British weightlift, weightlifting as well. I can nearly say that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that, that's what I do. Um, and yeah, I suppose the things that give me energy, uh, it's just, uh, do you know what? I like to say when people ask me how I am, I just respond, I'm alive. Okay. And okay. I and, and then I follow it up with a, a crap punchline of it's a low <laughs> it's a low standard, but I find hitting it daily helps. And that that does me. I've never been happy since I started setting my standards that low. Okay. Um, love it. Love it. <laughs> I don't know. Good, good what, are your th- what are your thoughts on that, Jesse? No, well, geez, I, I like that. I like that. Is that uh semi along the lines of you know, let's let's cultivate the small wins. Let's let's get a bit of a uh, bit of traction with with some of the basic stuff. We're we're breathing and we're standing upright, and and we go from there, really. I suppose. So, um, <laughs> I'm interested. Uh, coaching at 16—that's a young age to get to coaching. Uh, can you talk us through that story? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in a very small rural part of Ireland, um, and the only sport in the local village was hurling, which is an Irish sport, um, and essentially. It's organized on parochial basis of like you have to beat the neighboring parish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is essentially it's a big cultural sport. It's a big part of your identity. It's a big part of where we're from. Um, and then on top of that, um, the area that I lived in was like a, a peninsula. So it was only three miles wide and ten, mm-hmm. 10 miles long. So, again, very isolated from the mainland. So that area produced um a remarkable amount of county level hurlers um oh. for because that was the main sport in the area so it's quite um insular and in, in how we go about things mm. but that was my big passion was playing hurling mm-hmm. um and uh i i got into coaching because I, I loved the sport and i essentially went on and you know thought i'd be a pe teacher um and i ended up then working for the ga uh, being a sport development officer instead after doing my sports science degree i did mm-hmm. research and performance analysis and that got published um so qu- quite a strange thing to publish Very your cool. undergrad dissertation and performance <laughs> yeah. analysis um totally. uh and then from that that impacted the coach education pathway uh so that got presented at croke park uh at the national conference one year uh, among other places so it was it was pretty cool to have an impact on the sport fantastic your undergrad degree but then i got into weightlifting because i was slow and uh i heard that would make you fast and, okay. and it, Ended up then getting into coaching weightlifting because I wanted to know more and then ended up sitting on the board of directors for or the committee for Northern Ireland uh, weightlifting. Uh, and that was before I got the job as sports psych for uh, British weightlifting. Um, mm-hmm. I also sat in the board of directors for Nepal Northern Ireland, although I haven't wore a skirt uh other than one occasion which i'm not willing to talk about on this podcast <laughs> come on you're setting me up there big time to ease that out of you as we get to know each other a little bit more but well that's that's quite a trajectory and quite a story and i'm quite interested kind of going from hurling correct me if i'm wrong pretty pretty brutal sports and what i've seen of it and, and pretty full-on a lot of physical contact then into the weightlifting coaching and then sports psychology so how did how did those dots connect from you know competing playing coaching and then getting into the mental side and working with the high-level olympians well um essentially the career trajectory in sports ecology is somewhat arduous and if i'm honest there's the idea of being prepared for your luck is a really good concept because there was a job in england i was actually uh living in the south of ireland at that time where i'd set up another weightlifting club um 
and I, I applied for the job and ended up getting it. And uh, it was a senior role and they, they hired me as a junior person and gave me more hours. So I moved over and took the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and that essentially what is what occurred. Um, so I, I did my undergrad in sports science. Then uh, later on, went back to education around 30 and, and did a master's in sports ecology and then began the basis uh, sport and exercise science route um, to become a, a, an accredited sports ecologist. So cool. um so yeah um it's it's a long and winding career path and i think if anybody's listening to this and, and cares i i think the way i would conceptualize things is when things aren't working for you start saying yes to all the opportunities you can get and when they start working for you and you get stretched and busy start saying no to all the opportunities and put your prices up good um, and that's pretty much um i think a good a good approach is start saying yes to opportunities because then you end up making those connections and, and getting on uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah we're not here to talk about career pathways are no, we? i like that though but like that, that reminds me of um greg McEwen's book essentialism where he talks about it it's it's either a hell yes or a no you know when you get to a certain point i quite like that sometimes we say a bit of a soft yes and then we have to make a thousand future decisions on that initial yes we've made but actually it's not moving our ball down our field is it and it's it's such a little balance to have so um so i'm curious to know how come you said yes to me today uh, I actually I only said yes to you because you became you were recommended through uh, Martin. Um, I w- would have actually turned you down, uh, other than you've actually come through a good recommendation. I think that's again speaks speaks to your having a good network of people, you know, um, because I, it's I'm busy. Um, but the, it's interesting you bring that point up about uh, hell no versus yes. If you look at the book. Uh, by Saren Connolly called Sporting Body, Sporting Mind. This, I mean, it's a very old sports psychology book, but one of the really interesting things about goal setting and that is they actually do a goal setting exercise, which is much better than all the smarter nonsense that you get. Mm-hmm. And it asks you to write down everything you want in your life when you're dead. And it's like people spend five minutes doing that. They're told to spend five minutes doing that. They're normally done after two minutes. And then you do the same exercise uh, for five years, then one year, then six months. And then you join up all the goals and you pick uh, two goals from each sheet of time. So you go A4 page of everything you want in life, A4 page of everything you want in the next five years, <laughs> one year, six months, whatever. So those time frames, two goals from each page and then two more goals that are B goals. Um, and then you go, right, that's all you can do because people set goals thinking that they can achieve everything. And actually goal setting is a prioritization tool not a performance tool it's about prioritization of effort and i think if you look at like look at your day it's got 24 hours like you need to prioritize your effort into hours not what you want and what the utopia is you know mm. it's cut away stuff you know mm. so i think it's a it's an important lesson that people don't seem to grasp when it comes to something as basic as goal setting sorry that's a bit of a rant there no, totally. These these are the interesting conversations. These rabbit holes and roots and threads we're going to pull on today. And because uh, I've got a question I'd like to ask you, we might even jump into it now. And it might be slightly linked in the whole idea of, you know, outcomes, you know, when at all costs. We, we we see this in modern sports and you might be, again, at the cutting edge of Olympians. And what I'm hearing you say with goal setting, how did you say it was really cool? It's, it's, it's about the performance. Now, how did you say it's like you break it down into the stuff you can deliver on? Can you just yeah, so go with that a little bit? It's it's about prioritization. That's it's it. about mm. what you can cut out. So you need to be able to prioritize. Um, and how and... does that then link to that? Like, I suppose the big outcomes, if you're looking at outcomes of gold medalists, right? And we always hear process, trust in the process, outcome through process, all of these things. How do you walk that fine line of those things? 
So in terms of the fine line, what, what, what do you, the first question that I ask is, what do you see on either side of the line, Jesse? Um, I, see, I see athletes possibly defining their self-worth on the the shiny piece of gold that that gold medal um i see athletes going i'm a better person when i when i'm winning when i'm getting the success of what the world thinks about and and no you might have had this where you're talking to athletes about you know you're, you're trying to grow yourself as a person you're trying to do you know the best you can in each moment in the process and sometimes that's not sexy that doesn't sell sometimes does it so again with us being a sports psychologist how how do you get the athletes to try buy into the process without becoming blinded by the the, the shiny metal thing that is i don't know the, the outcome of all the process they're doing okay so there's a, there's a couple of different threads within that is one about getting people to buy in and there's another one about identity and valuing of the goal mm-hmm. and the thing is if the if your goal whatever it is whether it's a gold medal or whether it's buying a house or whether it's, you know, getting a wife and settling down with life or getting fit, whatever, running a three-hour marathon, what's, what are you prepared to pay for it? Um, because that's that's what it'll cost you. Mm-hmm. And if I was to say to you, you know, buy this cup, this, this lovely cup off me, if you're going to buy this cup off me and you're willing to pay everything for it, I'm going to take everything. So what are you willing to pay for this cup right now, Jesse? Oh, it's a, it's a quite a nice blue that it's it's almost on my brand colors there. So I reckon a, a solid fiver will will come your way for a that. A fiver, okay. <laughs> but like, if you had to have this cup and this cup was the, really important to you, mm. how much would you be willing to pay? Financially, we're we talking about, or yeah, financial, financially. Financially, if it's everything, if it's literally the cup I need and want, um, we may be talking in the region of. I know I'm pushing two and a half, three thousand pounds possibly. Just two and a half, three, right? Okay, okay, so this cup now costs you two and a half, three thousand pounds because you want it that much, mm-hmm. right? So if we look at this in terms of performance point of view, when you decide that you want something so much without actually knowing how much you're willing to give, what you're doing is you're creating a scenario where you're going to buy into something continually, keep working towards it. And potentially get to a point where maybe you've got 2300 going to invest in this cup. Mm-hmm. And I said to you, the price has gone up. It's now 2400 And you've worked hard to get that far. What happens is we've now got sunk cost fallacy, which mm. is a process whereby what you invest time in, you start to value, even if it's not paying you off, simply because you've invested time. So sunk cost. So if you think about it, a lot of athletic careers are, are uh, fueled by this sunk cost. And that sunk cost is not a, not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing because it helps keep us motivated because we're like, I put so much effort into this. I'm going to keep continuing on. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why you know people stay in shitty relationships uh, long after they know they should end because they've invested time in it. But it's similarly with athletes, you know, when they're chasing, chasing things that actually they realize they're placing too much value in what that's going to bring because the cost that they have sunk in, they weren't prepared to actually articulate what the price was before they began. You've articulated, I'm only going to pay a fiver. Therefore, this stops at six pound for you. Mm-hmm. But if you actually don't know what you're prepared to pay, then you run the risk of paying everything. And I think that's a good way of looking at how elite sport can sometimes suck a lot of people's lives out of it. You know, And mm. it's not just elite sport. There's many aspects of career and personal life where people can you know, be prepared to pay everything 
and not actually realize that they have haven't articulated you know what the cost is going to be and how that cost is going to mount over time mm-hmm. so i don't know i think it's yeah, gone it makes in, sense i think mm. there's a, a movie quote and gone in 60 seconds it might be uh or is it heat it's heat or seven okay it's one of those one of those <laughs> actors robert de niro or al pacino he says never do anything that you're not prepared to walk out on in, in 30 seconds Oh, um, okay okay and and i think like if you're actually thinking critically about things you need to be able to make decisions that are painful and hard and actually you know be able to have that conversation about any aspect of your life because the reality is for some people that is their life for some people they have to make those decisions and that's why we end up in places where people get uh, emotionally disturbed and troubled because they're not actually expecting a scenario where they have to make a decision in 30 seconds that affects the rest of their life. Hmm. So I, I've jumped down a big mad deep hole there. Love and, it though. Love it. More, more than welcome to pull me back out of it. No, that's, that's again, I love those little threads. What what was popping in my mind was, was when, how do you have this conversation with the athlete? You know, you, you're going to get athletes, you know, at a certain part of their career and they've already invested the sunk cost fallacy and they're already in that stage of things. Um, is that a big part of your role to try keep asking the right questions, keep unpacking with them. How much are you willing to pay? Can you define your willingness to pay and what, and what that looks like? How does that work then for you as a, with your professional hat on? Well, a big big part of the thing is I have to not give a shit. Am I allowed to swear on this mm-hmm. podcast? Yes, yep, yeah. Open, I, have, yeah. I have to not give a shit about the athlete's uh, outcome, right? Because the, the worst thing that happens within sport and within discussing things with your friends and family people get bought into the positive outcomes and because of that that then leaves you open to receiving bad advice so my my first thing is to check my own judgment i have to want with equal measure the athlete to be the world's best and to retire within the next 30 seconds hmm. because wow. that's that's non-judgmental that's me going i'm i'm not bought into uh, the decision either way I'm bought into you and you deciding for yourself I'm not bought into what you decide and that's the first step in having an actual conversation whereby you're going to make a difference with somebody because if you're bought in and you've already bought into a direction you're not helping them in that process of having a conversation so athletes need to f- need to pick that up from you and they pick that up from you um, because of the language you use and how you go about things and how you don't you don't seek approval of them you don't you don't you don't uh, idolize them and you don't put them on any sort of pedestal and you blow into the smoke that might be going to other places that other people <laughs> might be using with them, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's about interesting. remaining quite non-judgmental. I don't, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, th- this probably strikes you as a bit jarring. No, this this is exactly why I wanted to have this conversation. Um, I'm I'm processing as we're speaking here. I think I think my thoughts will come out in my questions as we go here because there's cogs are turning with this. Um but when you say quite jarring, you know, it really much, you know, I think the world you work in and what I've seen of you and, and the little bit, you know, I've connected with you over Twitter, you talk about this idea of critical thinking and psychology and how to stop bullshit and fluff. And I think we've just started going down that rabbit hole a little bit. Um, so I'm going to not answer your question directly, but I think I'm going to come circle back to it as we start to go. Um, so can you help unpack this, the idea of that, that bullshit, that fluff? Like, like, what is that? Why are you passionate about that? Why are you passionate to dispel myths around that type of stuff? So on my YouTube, I actually have a critical thinking course. It's free. Um, And I put that out there because I'm passionate about people thinking uh, in ways that help uh, help them think 
about performance, about their lives in a much more clear way. And because there's a tax, there's a stupidity tax, if you can't think properly. Um, and thinking properly isn't about being intelligent. It isn't about knowing all the information. It's about not being afraid to ask questions that are challenging. Mm, it's about okay. think, thinking through things in a process uh, and a procedural way and looking for flaws. Now, there's a secondary issue to that, is if you're really good at critical thinking, you can come across as some sort of evangelist that just continually you know, critiques things and is the noisy person. But you also have to have the secondary skill of not only thinking critically, but then communicating with people uh, who you're thinking critically for or uh, in an environment where you need to pass on information, where there's critical thinking that has changed or should impact the processes that you, you're working with. Mm -hmm. So like critical thinking is a skill and communicating uh, how you think critically in a non-judgmental way that is allowing people to understand how you think or how you're finding flaws with the current process is also a secondary skill. Um, but why am I passionate about critical thinking? Because every year we waste thousands of pounds of money and resources doing things that are absolute nonsense and creating you know, secondary effects. So for example, a really good way to think about any intervention and performance is not that it's a good intervention or a bad intervention, is that it actually has a, a knock-on effect, like a domino, a secondary effect. And that secondary effect could be all bad or all good or a mixture, right? And actually, that's a lie. Nothing is all bad or all good. Mm -hmm. But then that secondary effect has a tertiary effect, and part of it is, all, is good and part of it is bad. So actually, you've, you've got these like cascading effects. And a good example of this is if I come in and I do a bad coaching session with you, you're then left to think for yourself. Again. And then as an athlete, you might develop more. So by exposing you to an environment where I'm a pro coach, you're going to have to work harder as an athlete. By exposing you to an environment where I'm a great coach and you have to think less, the athlete might develop less. Hmm. So, let me, so let me just unpack that. Yeah. So you say a bad session is when an athlete has to think more. Is that what I heard right? So let's... Let's remove the word bad or okay. good because they're judgmental, mm -hmm. right? If I do a session where I give less feedback to an athlete, you know, like a coaching session, mm -hmm. they then have to think more themselves, mm -hmm. right? And they and, have to. And is that something that you just just again? I don't want to put bad or good. That's mm -hmm. a a session you want to steer more clear of because right? What, but, no, no, okay. no, no, no. So okay. It, it's not that I want to stay more clear of anything. I want to be aware of if I go in and do a coaching session that has uh, a bad quality to it, right? And and when I say bad quality, I mean, I may be not engaged. I'm giving low quality of feedback, uh, that type of stuff. The athlete then has to think for themselves more. Got it. So that mm -hmm. athlete then is going to be limited in the short period of time where I'm being a, a, a not great coach, mm -hmm. but they might then develop successful traits as an athlete because they start thinking for themselves. Mm -hmm. However, the other alternative is if I'm a very precise coach and very attentive and I offer feedback all the time, their rate of progress might go through the roof. But what happens if they no longer work with me? They move away, they, I or I die or I stop coaching them. Their rate of progress stops and they don't have any ability to self-guide themselves. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if you look at it, and this is just through a basic skill acquisition framework um, of, you know, self-guided coaching will be slow in developing, but mm -hmm. the skills will last them a lifetime. Um, feedback, uh, high levels of feedback will result in fast development, but they'll have no skills after that or less skills. Exactly. So it, it only matters if, 
your time point is close to competition. So if you're improving at a fast rate, two people, that's great. And you're, you're, when it's important is, you know, within six months and you've got coaching up to six months, then you're going to improve the most. But if you're actually looking at what's your career going to be like over six, seven years, maybe the the less guided or the less intensive feedback sessions might be better if you're thinking more long term. But then we're get getting it. into philosophy mm-hmm. of coaching, and then we're thinking about knock on effects. Effects, and that's across the one domain, one domain of feedback. That's not across like many different biopsychosocial stuff and everything else. So again, this is just you know when you pull it back and trying to take a simple example to explain the complexity of coaching. Yes, yeah, and then why <laughs> why critical thinking is important. So. You know, there's been things that I've done in psychology, and I've predicted outcomes in six months, and then they've occurred because we've made a we've made an athlete more independent and more forthright in themselves. They've fired the coach, you know. And it's like, well, we we predicted that because you know the coach was underperforming, and as they got better as an athlete, they then fired the coach. We need we then had another problem. I don't know if that was the right thing. Maybe we needed the athlete to stay less developed, mm-hmm. more reliant on the coach, and they might have performed because that was prior to the games, you know? Mm. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's complex. It's very mm. complex. And I we, think this is, yeah. We, so so there's a, a critical thinking piece I want to pull on in a sec, but where does this sit with the the, the Jean Cote, you know, self-determination theory? Is, the, is there any overlap here? Because he's very big on, on that, isn't he, I believe? So um, I'm not too familiar with, I've heard of Jean Cope, but I'm not too familiar of what he says about self-determination theory. But from Daisy and Ryan, the idea of self-determination theory is obviously uh, autonomy, competence and relatedness. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, that's one theory uh, on motivation. Um, and if you pull back, you look at Misha et al. Uh, and their behavior change framework of the CONB model. So capability, opportunity and motivation. That then is a different framework to look at it because our behavior is not just determined by you know autonomy competency and ratedness it's only part of it and that's also our motivation it's not our commitment you do things like i always put use the example of i'm not motivated to clean my child's nappy right never did i wake up going yay another (laughs) nappy right but the nappies get changed doesn't matter when doesn't matter what with what tools you know if we're stuck like Anything, you know, if I'm out in the middle of the wilderness, I've got no tools, that nabby's coming off, he's mm-hmm. getting leaves, something's happened. And it's not because I'm at any point motivated to do any of that. I'm just 100% committed because mm-hmm. it's my child. So again, this is, I suppose, a different way of how do you conceptualize? You're motivated by things, but you're mm-hmm. committed to things. And again, I suppose, where am I going with this? You're asking me about uh, self-determination theory and the athlete. And I think what you're pulling at is there is, how do we how do we create a, a autonomous athlete? No human is one hundred percent autonomous. We all have interact. You know, even right now, you and me are interacting. We're not autonomous. So, mm-hmm. I think the the process there is that while the athlete might be informed, and they might they might also have consequences of being informed, and that might have consequences related to if their performance is in six months' time at the games. And they're deciding to, to sack their coach six months out from the games. The level of disruption might have a negative impact on their performance. I'm not making a judgment as to whether it's right or non- wrong to do that. Uh, as a psych, I don't buy into making judgments. I have to just help the person give the best advice where it's given, but more so facilitate their thinking on it. Um, mm-hmm. Whether or not they win is is really, I suppose, 
or, or qualify or whatever it is, is really down to many, many factors. But in that case, you know, you you would say to the athlete, you, you can take these options, consider them both. But, you know, once the damage is done, the damage is done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. I don't know. Did that help? Yeah, hundred percent. And and again, they, they, I don't think we're here to kind of find well, again, like real definitive answers. It's 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 interesting conversations, and we're going in different directions. Mm. So, two quick things on critical thinking. Um, firstly, where can people find you on YouTube? Just type in your name, like, because that sounds really interesting to find. First of yeah, all, yeah. So, uh, if you search uh, podium psychology on YouTube, my mm. YouTube channel will come up. Um, if you find me on Instagram, um, mm. uh, is where I put most of my stuff out. Um. Then there's a wee link in the bio and that has a link to the critical thinking series, which is like, there's three videos to it. Um, yeah, I'll go, I'll go check that out after this. That's really, really cool. And then the, the second part in critical thinking, this, this, um, is quite interesting. What I'm hearing you saying is you're, you're, you're not the athlete's best buddy. You're not trying to, you know, kind of bolster them up as a, as a friend, you're giving them information details. That's going to heighten their performance. It's, it's, it's almost feels like it's quite a contractual approach it's like you know what let's get this done and you'll be able to achieve this so what i'm trying to get at is is how does that not come across as possibly cold negative to the point um, i'm learning here so please pull me up on any of the stuff as well mm-hmm. how does that, how does that balance then work with you and an athlete um obviously you need to have uh correct me if i'm wrong again like um a relationship with athlete you need to build a relationship a rapport all of that stuff but critical thinking is is kind of like we're getting to the point here and we're getting you to perform at your best how do you mm-hmm. get that balance right you so mark twain said uh, a friend is somebody who will stand beside you even when you're wrong and because any and the, the second bit of that is because any fool will stand beside you when you're right I see mm. right and and here's the thing if if I'm to help somebody and you've you've labeled it as cold, you've labeled it as uh, maybe negative or factual and to the point. If I'm dealing in uh, surgery, right? If I've got you in the operating table, who do you want? Do you want somebody <laughs> yeah. to tell you it's going to be all right, or do you want the cold hard truth? Yeah, yeah. You want delivery. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So. You you want the facts. You want you want performance delivered when it's a serious uh, place to operate in, right? You want to feel good when it's not a serious place to oper- operate in. So if you're serious about your performance, then you're serious about all the shit that goes with it. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, it's there isn't there isn't some lovely utopia where you know you get a medal and your life works out. You know, look at how like there's a great example of. Uh, a medalist in Australia ended up a meth dealer um, and wow. got, arre- got arrested, you know, um, like just because you win a medal in a sport doesn't mean that everything else is going well in your life. Um, it's not some magical signaler of, you know, you're a wonderful human being. It doesn't mean you're not an asshole. It doesn't mean that you're not kind to people uh, or it doesn't mean that you're always kind to people. It doesn't mean that you're uh, financially set. It doesn't mean anything other than you performed well, and yes, some people do capitalize it and we hear about it. But the facts mm-hmm. of the matter is that most Olympians don't make a lot of money. Most Olympians, you know, don't end up in some famous place. Um, you know, so those mm-hmm. are the very few people um, because how people capitalize those things and whether or not those sports are even. Um, well, give me an example. You obviously uh, are familiar with squash. Yep. 
name me somebody who won a medal mm-hmm. uh, four uh, Olympic cycles ago. As firstly, he's questioned that Olympics was really sad. Uh, yeah, so, I know. Yeah, Commonwealth know. Games, Commonwealth Games. Yeah. So that's probably the base one. So what, four, eight, twelve, sixteen no, no, years so, ago? No, not not no. from squash, from any other sport. Okay, okay. So uh, what, an Olympic gold medalist in the last four cycles? Yeah, so four cycles ago. Oh, four uh, cycles ago. Um, well, with Daly Thompson, Lincoln there, possibly. Um, I know um, Steve Redgrave. I'm sure he probably is in about four, four okay. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've linked the, you've linked two athletes, right? How many other people won medals, and then how many other people were competitors? Oh yeah, like like you're talking my minutia there. Yeah. 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 So like those are the popular ones. The the rest are you know not not benefiting as much as we would believe. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, where would it, where am I get with that? The yeah. So, of, so yeah. The point, about, mm-hmm. the point about being uh, factual about being dealing with the facts is that. That's that's the truth of performance is like, you know, there are scenarios where, you know, people's careers are over. People are forced into retirement through injury um, or even just receive dehabilitating injuries, which, you know, end up affecting them for the rest of their life. So this is a hard environment to operate in. Um, and I don't think I don't think shying away from it. So you talked about the balance. The difference mm-hmm. is that you can be compassionate and you can be caring. And you can build a relationship and also speak the truth. The two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think that's the thing. It's like if you get arrested, right? So there's work by, again, I think it's Kevin, but I can't remember his, his surname. Okay. But he talked about police interviews and the idea being that if you're taking somebody in um, for questioning or for even arresting them, you can actually say to them, look, you know, we're in the process here. We've got evidence towards you for for murder or whatever it is. Um, this is the way the process is going to go. Here's how we're going to lay things out. This is going to be a tough experience, um, but we're going to, you know, support you as an individual. But we're also going to prosecute you for this murder. I see. Okay. Right. You. There's no. Di- there's no difference there in terms of we can care for somebody and also. Um, be straight to the point but Mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing in itself because i mean i think i'm not too sure who said it but you know you can judge a society by how they treat their criminals not by how they treat their wealthy or they're great exactly i think that says a lot about um how we should interact with everybody yeah um yeah i like that yeah yeah. i can't remember where that came from but it is it's resonated a few times in the last years it's it's a real great kind of starting point Mm. so one more little thread to pull on there i think is so, so we're hearing about performance. We're hearing about, you know, you gave that example of Australia and a meth dealer, but I might not use the word balance, but how do you then avoid an athlete? Maybe this is not your job, but but how do you make them a good citizen? How do you actually go, yes, you want to be the best of the best of the best, but if you're leaving a wake of destruction and you've not taken care of some of the more important things in your life and all you've got is performance and you're giving them the feedback for that, like, critical thinking the performance side of things is it even your role to make them into a slightly better citizen a slightly better human for their their environment around them for other inspirations for other weightlifters or anything thoughts on that yeah well can you tell me what a good citizen is um in the in an athlete context or just a good citizen well can you can you identify uh what a good citizen is i think i can with spending a bit of time with them which you know there, there's a there's a level of 
you know, selflessness, like, you know, it's not all about me, 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 not all about I'm going to be doing this for myself. We're all selfish to a certain degree. Um, I think maybe the concept of doing things for a slightly greater good, not altruism in that sense that, you know, I'm a believer that we, 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 you know, like a faith thing. I know we might talk about stoicism yeah. at some point, yeah. which is all logos. You know, I like the idea of, yeah. you know, you, there, there's this cart going by and you're a dog on a leash attached to the cart. And that leash has a certain amount of, of, of space. You can either be dragged along by the cart or you can explore, but go with fate. So for me, those are getting along the lines of being a good citizen. I could go down lots of different rabbit okay. holes. Yeah. So let's pick up those two things. Okay. One was be a little bit selfless. And uh, the other one was some connection to a bit, a bigger purpose. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, like connection to a bigger purpose doesn't have to be religious. It could be no. anything from community uh, is a good predictor of health outcomes. Um, so actually finding purpose and meaning in life is, is of real value to your individual self, as well as obviously if that's connected to a bigger thing, uh, like a community, then that's mm -hmm. also going to be hopefully beneficial to the community as well. Uh, the selflessness, if we put 100 people on a scale of from zero to 100 of selfishness, uh, some of them will be 100% selfish and uh, some of them will be 0% selfish, right? Mm -hmm. And there isn't any evidence to suggest that either one of those ends of that scale and everything in between at all the different points from like 50 percentile to the 75th, there isn't any evidence to suggest that there's any one right way to be. Okay. Um, and not only that, the people who are 100% uh, selfish might be people who pick a direction, go and explore something and, you know, do some good for society because they're hyper-focused on something. Mm -hmm. The people who are 100% selfish, selfless, mm -hmm. they might be people who interfere and suffer because they're too busy worrying about other people and getting on with their own lives and work and sorting themselves out. Right. I see. So yeah. Makes sense that I like we, that. Mm. Yeah. We, we pick a single word and it get, comes into <laughs> critical thinking. This. We pick a single word that sounds lovely, like, you know, selfishness or, caring it's altruism like, whatever yeah. yeah you can be too caring and you can be uh not caring enough and all of that depends on yourself your resources and your context you know mm -hmm. and it also depends on how it plays out over time as well so i'm sure you could think of times when you sh maybe should have been less uh, selfish and also times when you should have been more selfish mm -hmm. and as ever everybody could so i think this then comes down to the fact of like, what, what is a good citizen? That's your personal judgment uh, of, and, and you're sat going, you know, somebody should be like 69% selfish or selfless. It's like, well, yes, somebody else disagrees and thinks it's 68%, you know? <laughs> yeah. And again, everyone's wrong in the wrong context. So again, it's not my place to make somebody a good citizen. It's my mm -hmm. place to support an individual in their direction. Uh, if their direction is towards something that I find personally disagreeable with, um, for example, crime, right? Then I'm like, well, sorry, that's not for me. And I'm, I'm ratting you out. Unless you give me half of the proceeds, <laughs> right? But we might, we might need to edit that bit out. But <laughs> no. the, the, the point I'm making, the point I'm making here is that when we want something from these athletes, they are there to perform. They're not there to be your entertainment. They're not there to do anything. You know, they get a sponsorship deal because you like them, right? Stop telling them how to be. Um, so some of the athletes that I've worked with who've been Olympians are, have said, you know, 
I used to like this sport. It was my hobby. It's became my job. And I honestly wish people would leave me alone so I can enjoy my hobby. I don't need the attention. Mm. Um, so yes, they benefit from it, but that doesn't mean that they owe you anything. Yeah. They don't. I like that. That's it. Well, thank you for really unpacking a bit of critical thinking, going down those rabbit holes. I, I, I'm really glad we're having this chat. But let's um, maybe pull on that other little thread. I, I I believe you're quite big into stoicism. Personally, love it. I think if, if there's the greater thing I'm looking at it, uh, I like that idea of using ancient Greeks and Romans thinkers. Um, stoicism and sport. You know, what resonates? What connections can you make between these two things? Because I've, I've been exploring this for a couple of years now, but I think there's real strong connections. Well, I suppose... For me, stoicism is the underpinning of rational mode of behavior therapy. But the other thing about stoicism is it's not the uh, the holding of knowledge, it's the pursuit of knowledge. And, and one of the stoic virtues is wisdom. So if we think about stoicism and we just remove it as philosophy and critical thinking, you know, that's all it is. Um, because would the stoics think the way they did now and i think this is one of the things that people people like oh yeah look this was cool big dude with a sword small dude uh, who was a slave you know they're all very wise they all you know all these nice stories mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's the kind of stories that bind people together enough to talk about it however the reality is they all essentially explored different value points within uh, their society and came up with uh, some truths which lived on past them Mm -hmm. So when the truths that lived on past them are things that are to a large degree irrefutable um, or should I be better say not haven't haven't been refuted yet. Yeah, I got you. So, mm -hmm. for example, the whole thing about we suffer more in our mind than we do in reality. You know, that's quite true. Um, there's a large body of research in how like we cause stress by thinking. Um, we can also cause happiness by thinking. If I tell you, think of your most happiness, happy most happiness moment. Yeah, we'll do that. Think of your most yeah. happiness moment. Um, and you you'll start getting happy, but think of what's stressing you out today or tomorrow, then you'll think about that and you'll have a stress response. Mm -hmm. But stoicism essentially powers down and, and tries to get as close to reality as possible. And our perceptions are that life should go well, that we should be liked by others, um, and that things should be easy and come to us. And those perceptions are flawed. Life doesn't have to go well. We could both die now. Um, it doesn't have to be easy. There's nothing that says that we should have things easy and we don't have to like each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I always make the point with whenever I do agree with somebody, I'd say something along the lines of, I agree with you, but you don't need me to agree with you because okay. I don't want to let people think that they need that level of agreement to do what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think this is a thing that there's, uh, within psychology and sport, there's this utopian kind of view of like, everybody loves it. Let's all get along. And, you know, let's all love squash, for example, mm -hmm. but I'm sure just like every other sporting organization or every other workplace squash is full of politics. And I don't, I, you're nodding. I know nothing about squash. Mm -hmm. I bet you there's like five dramas going on at the moment. <laughs> there's right? a lot. I, I, I could do a whole podcast on that, but we won't go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, but that's, but that's exactly because there's always drama going on when humans, humans are involved. So mm -hmm. really what are your boundaries and what are you willing to affect your life and what can you control? So this mm -hmm. is the thing that, that our, our stoicism bleeds into RABT is how do we find the truth? Yes. Yeah. We find we find the truth or as close to reality of the truth as possible. Because we could debate semantics of what, what is truth. 
But first of all, the questions are, is what I believe helpful? Is there logic in what I believe? And is there evidence to support it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, while we all want to have a great life, there's horrible stories of like things going wrong for people. Like in the news recently, there was a house explosion, right? In Jersey. Yeah, I was actually yeah. reading it before we came on. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's absolutely horrific. And we sort of go like, that's really bad. But there's nothing to say that that or something of that magnitude couldn't just happen tomorrow for no reason to us. We have mm-hmm. no control over things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is where... You know, we think that things like that shouldn't happen, but they do happen, mm-hmm. you know, and the reality is we live in a world where humans make mistakes, uh, they act with bad intent, they act with good intent and do bad things uh, or have bad outcomes. So even if somebody's trying to help you, they can still hinder you. Mm-hmm. So again, you look at the reality of it, it is difficult, expect difficulty, expect yeah. people to do wrong to you, expect people to... Um, do wrong to you but while trying to help you um and then take responsibility for your end of the the stick that you're trying to lift and whatever performance endeavor you have mm-hmm. that's reality you know it is yeah and th- and that's why the more you were saying that the more i was kind of thinking but but stoicism can arm you in rebt with the you know i've only recently got into like really going down that rabbit hole of rebt it really arms you with some great tools you know in my opinion it's like yeah let's let's uh, they premeditate premeditatum where they meditate on their death and they they're anticipating the worst things that can happen and that's not a doom and gloom outlook it's going this is reality people this is you know and if we can get ourselves in this headspace that when when the difficulty and the obstacle hits us we can we can adapt we can flow yeah we might not like it we might not we'll have the emotions but boy we've actually given ourselves a little bit of an armor plating that's how i'm connecting the dots there and rbt very close connection there you think massively so you've just you've hit the nail in the head there we might not like it this is the 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 bullshit and fluff that is promoted within psychology but oh, be happy no. <laughs> i don't want people to be happy i want them to perform I want them to be as miserable as they possibly can be and still perform because that's what yeah. they want. They yeah, want yeah, to perform. Yeah. How they feel about it doesn't matter. you know. And if we spend our lives chasing happiness, we've wasted our lives chasing some weird emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, That emotion is just a signal to let us know that things are going well. That's it. The other emotions are just signals to let us know that things are not going well. And that's good because that's a useful way to connect to the world and have feedback. If we stop thinking about emotions as the end goal, which is what psychology sells a lot of the time, the fluff merchants will sell you about being happy, being more positive, being more mindful. I want somebody to sell me performance. You know, mm. I want somebody to get the job done. I want somebody to say, we produce these results and outcomes um, and you don't, you're not going to like it, but you're going to get your results. And then you pay the price for it because there isn't a there isn't a free ride, um, and I think the more people are honest about that, the more RABT and stoicism have the power to actually really help people because it does help you deal with difficult things, you know. It does, yeah, yeah, and that's you know it's I, I again getting a little bit personally, I got into stoicism at a real difficult part of my personal life, and man, it's just it just completely you know the 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 most difficult thing I was going through. Again, there was a lot of journaling involved, a lot of slowing down, but a lot of reading stoic 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 wisdom and then journaling on those things. And um yeah, it just it just felt like then when other 
big shit started to hit me. It was like, actually, I've been here before. I've been able to handle it. And, and it's almost then the whole idea of the, the prediction of, of the worst case things. And I'm lucky enough to have interviewed some of the, some of the world's top squash players. And a lot of them now don't talk about this positive visualization where they go, you know, see yourself holding the trophy and law of attraction. And that is the fluff, right? They, they putting in these scenarios, they imagining they are, you know, eight love down in the first game. And, you know, all of a sudden the crowd is off on their, not on their side. And it's like, what is your response to that situation? That's what they're finding more and more powerful. Um, so where do you sit with that? You know, visualizations, negative visualizations, positive visualizations. Do they come into some of the work you do with athletes? Well, I mean, you know, that idea of premeditating things going wrong obviously emerged from stoicism, but within rational emotive behavior therapy, you've got rational emotive imagery, which is essentially, right, put yourself in the scenario of it going wrong and you handling it, you know? So if you're going to compete and you're scared and anxious about losing, right? Okay, face that. Like, there's nothing braver than facing the thing that you're most scared of. So, if the thing is, I don't want to, you know, go over or go over on my ankle uh, on the in the final and have to withdraw, right? Okay, imagine that. How would you respond? How would you respond in the press conference? Go to the actual point that makes you so sick. Who would you have to speak to? Who do you think would be gloating? Who do you think would be uh, disappointed? You know actually imagine that and deal with that. And then you'll realize that that's not so bad. And then that mm. that issue is removed for you or dealt with. And you can actually move on to, right, what do you need to focus on to perform? So this is a, a, a useful thing. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is that's rational emotive imagery for the purposes of dealing with difficult scenario, right? Um, how I would operate in a difficult scenario. Um, I'm sure plenty of people have had a thought with the whole Ukraine stuff of like, what would I do if war occurred, you know, and, and nuclear stuff, whenever that was, that kicked off, those mm -hmm. thoughts must have come into people's head. That's preempting things that might happen, that could happen, that may happen. And it's actually useful to do. Yeah. Now, what's not useful though, is to be thinking about the negative outcomes when you're trying to perform. And that's a different form of imagery. So you might use prior to the, the competition or prior to the event, you want to use imagery in, in the days beforehand and in, the, in, the, in your training of you doing a good performance and also of you recovering a bad performance. But where there's an emotional aspect of you feeling emotionally disturbed that the pressure or anxiety that you might be facing, that you actually have thought about how you play that out. Because, you know, the worst thing that will happen to you is you'll die. And that's going to happen anyway. We're all rushing towards it anyway, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, can, can, can we, can we kind of handle this moment with, uh, yeah, again, not, not doom and gloom, but, but, but with a, with a positive outcome. And then I'm not sure if you do do this, but you know, let's say someone's a week out from an event, you go like what, seven, six, five days before it's kind of negative imagery. And then you start to kind of flip it to positive. Is it not as formulaic as that? How, how do you work with an athlete with that then? So you do what they need. Okay. Um, and I think that's the thing that where you've got this skill, you know, I, if I was a builder, I'd come in and look at the ground and design and, you know, decide how this would be built based on their needs and consult with them of what their issues are. So it's not a case of there is a way, there is a case of what is the need. Um, and that's the client client's brief and the client designs that. But again, that's, you do that through discussion. So like my, my simple question, like starting out of, uh, uh, motivational interviewing session would be, 
what is the what's the reason you're here today and how can I best help help you? If it was RIBT, it's what would be what do you need to be different in six months? So what do you need what do you what do you want to work on today? What's the problem for you? Mm-hmm. So one's exploring things and the other one is uh working on things. Um so they're two different therapeutical approaches mm-hmm. which are that's well, quite quite and, interesting because because you are you, you're a motivational interview trainer you're a rebt therapist do you you know even within a session do you wear different hats sometimes do you do you borrow from both fields and feel feel the room so to speak how, how do you then navigate that it it depends on what you're dealing with and and you do you do feel the room depending on how the client has presented to you um and so motivational interviewing is essentially a facilitative conversation that develops somebody's intrinsic motivation for behavior change rational motive behavior therapy is a process of uh finding a philosophical truth that has a powerful reframing effect to allow for less emotional disturbance so you can perform better um so one facilitates behavior change the other facilitates uh cognitive change um sorry facilitates starting behavior change and the other one facilitates cognitive change which facilitates behavior change. Um, do you have a all. preference? Do you, do you lean into one or the other a little bit more? Um, does does a, does a bricklayer favor his tools <laughs> or does he use the tool for the job? You know? hey, well, great answer, great answer. I was I was putting you on the spot there, but to just kind of have a little test. Um, <laughs> you can put you can put me in the spot all day long. Like, great. I, I, you know, um, but no, I think the thing, thing is here, like, uh, when we look at motivational interviewing, motivational interviewing allows you to have really good conversations with people. Like if you imagine somebody's uh, addicted, so motivational interviewing emerged from addictions. And this is where I got this non-judgmental, this hard non-judgmental stance is because the big thing about motivational interviewing is a philosophy or the intent with which you uh, approach a conversation. And you have to go in with one of partnership and acceptance. And if you don't go in with partnership and you don't go in with acceptance, you've come in in the wrong place because you're now going in as an authority and you're now going in as judgmental. And that actually uh, causes people to push back against you because you know this, anybody time, anytime somebody tells you to do something, you're like, no, no, I'm busy. Why are they annoying me? And that's mm-hmm. not how you have a conversation. It facilitates behavior change. Mm-hmm. But this works, this works with people who are addicted. Um, so that's a very strong uh, physiological and biological, you know, behavior change mechanism that needs to occur. So using it in sport where there isn't an addiction where you're actually going like, can we be more motivated to train or more motivated to engage into different services or more motivated to try REBT, which is actually a thing that can be discomforting because you're actually facing the the difficulties, the realities, which you're not willing to face up to, um, to become stronger. So it's not, REBT is, is not about helping you feel better. It's about making you better, uh, which is a completely different uh, approach. Mm. Mm. And you, um, you've mentioned this idea about non-judgmental and, and you just said something there about when you go into maybe, uh, you know, motivational interviewing, where does, where does then the ego come in? Does ego need to be stripped away? Do you, do you need to get on the, on the same level as the person you're sitting across the desk or the room to? Um, cause, cause I'm sure ego might come into this a bit and you as a, yours said something about not being an authority. You're not walking there going, I know the answers and you listen to me. So I assume that's something you, you got to just get yourself or balance yourself right to. Yes. So what do you mean by ego? Ego, um, the the me, the I, you know, this is, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of trying to strip away. Again, I'm just kind of speaking out loud. Yeah, is it trying to strip away that idea where 
where where there's there's I'm, I'm trying to link this to judgment i suppose that's that's kind of what the, the connection i was thinking like you going in there and and if you're judging someone going okay well they xyz is that your ego talking because you're looking at it from that point of view i'm probably not making a very good kind no, of sense I, here I, I'll, I'll put back to you what i think i'm, I'm getting i think mm. you're asking the question of do i need to put my ego down Whenever I go into a conversation, yeah, like get on get on the same level if that's such a thing as as the person you're speaking to. Okay, so I'm not in the same level. I'm one percent below them. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. I'm there to work for people. I'm not there to be uh, tell them what to do. Now, if they ask me what I think, I'll tell them. And mm. if I think that they're actually um, making a bad decision, I'll challenge them. But I'll do that in a way that's aligned to that philosophy. Mm. Um, so. Essentially, when you think about ego, part of you is thinking maybe like I come in with some authority of, you know, experience and, you know, ability and understanding, come in and, you know, use my tools as as I see fit. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I have to have is relationship. And if I don't have that, I don't have anything. But that's true in everything. If you don't, you know, bedside manner in medicine is a massive impactor of its effect. But it's the same whenever you go to buy uh, a hot chocolate um, this Christmas. You're like, you're going to go to the coffee shop or the place that serves them where they're nice to you, where they smile, where they use your name, where they're genuine uh, and where they align to you. So like relationship is everything. And that's what makes businesses successful. It's what makes uh, people successful. It's what makes psychologists successful in their endeavors to help people. So it's not about me doing good. The other interesting thing that came up for me when you said ego is I'm not ever presenting a view that is 100% uh, factual because I can't determine a fact. And I'm also fallible as well. And that's mm -hmm. why uh, within the interaction in both RIBT and MI, my job is to facilitate them finding what works for them and also them using the tools and questions. So we might identify somebody's belief that is causing them issues, like I should win, right? And we will challenge that and create an alternative belief and then challenge the two beliefs side by side and see which one creates the better emotional outcomes for them or better behavioral outcomes for them. And that's the process. They choose to change their belief. I don't force them. Because yeah. how, who, in the, who has ever been forced to do anything that lasted, you know? You exactly. know, you, if you think of it from a point of view of a country, you can't invade a country because it will resist and you can't invade a person because they will resist. The only thing that is lasting about humans is that they cannot be conquered uh, for eternity. Like even if you try and conquer a nation, they will eventually, you know, fight back. They, they will change uh, and resist. So yeah, history not, shows that, you know, mm, mm. history shows that. And, and mm. you, you know this in yourself anytime you've been pushed by somebody, you, you push back. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. So what what I'm also hearing there, you 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 you're an expert in holding the mirror up to them. Is that you know is that a bit of a cheesy way to say it? But that's kind of what you're trying to get out of them, aren't you? Is is that is that the goal there? You 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 think that I'm an expert in uh, giving people feedback on what they've said? Uh, I get. I hopefully I'm not insulting you to the slightest. Yeah, I'm just kind of. <laughs> You're, you're concerned no. that you're concerned that you might have insulted me. Uh, <laughs> um, in a way, yeah, maybe maybe I did when I said that 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 wasn't intended in that way. But no, okay. I, I okay, I, so I, I wasn't intended in that way. Mm. So you see what I've done? I've actually just held the mirror up to you three yeah, times yeah, yeah. <laughs> to demonstrate that. So okay. 
what I've actually done there is I've demonstrated the technique of reflections where, and there's, there's different various categories of reflections in MI, mm-hmm. but by me saying that in a non-judgmental way, you felt the need to explain and talk more. Yes. Now, yes. if I asked you a question and I said, you want to know uh, if I'm an expert in holding up the mirror and helping people, uh, you know, reflect back what they say, is that right? Mm-hmm. You just say yes or no, mm. but because I just put that out as a straight statement without an intonation at the end that, you know, rising intonation, like, you know, I always use the example of throw another shrimp in the barbie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Australians have a high rising intonation at the end of their sentences, which makes them sound like questions. But mm. I, I just went throw another shrimp in the barbie. Mm-hmm. And that then means that you take that as a statement, you evaluate it and think, Oh, what did I say? Um, what uh, what is he thinking? And how do I want this conversation to progress? There's mm-hmm. no pressure on you to get into a yes or no uh, thing. It's actually giving you the power to, to lead the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I now know that you're concerned about whether or not you've offended me. You wanted to know if I've if I'm good at what I do, and you whatever else the third one was. Um, yeah, yeah, I see, yeah. Yeah, it so, is because because then I'm busy unpacking the things I've just said in a, on a deeper level. Answer, I'm going. Oh, okay, I said that. Crikey, where did that come from? <laughs> and then it's just like, it yeah. just goes with that. Yeah, yeah. Because I've given you the space to think about things. You then have to articulate it in a way which makes sense, which is essentially how talking therapies work because you're now saying things which have to articulate to be heard, mm. which means you then think out your thoughts and hammer them out into a straight line and put them out in the world and then get some of them back and reforge them into a different thought, which means you're you're now re-understanding the world in a, in a more coherent way. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, Hugh, I've loved this chat so far. I do want to respect your time. There's probably two more little quick questions I'd like to go through if you're happy with that. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to just get into maybe a little bit more of the weeds real quickly with, with maybe some tools to help a few athletes. And I wrote a few questions down and you said you'd be willing to kind of go through a couple of these. Um, I'm quite interested in athletes that are self-sabotaging in the moment of competition. They can't break the cycle. There's that, you know, you, you almost see the body language change. You see them reacting in a way. What do you do, REBT, motivation, interviewing athletes are in the competition, self-sabotaging, thoughts on that? That's The question is difficult because I need more information. So is there any way you could provide a yep, bit more yep. information on, on specifics again, of how somebody might be self-sabotaging? So, again, I'll use my wheelhouse, which is squash. So, you know, someone starts a match, they, they, they're feeling confident. They, they're feeling like, yes, I'm, I'm playing, I'm in my mode. But a similar pattern happens where they'll hit a certain shot or a certain sequence happens, and it's like, oh, this always happens to me. I, 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 and then all of a sudden, it's like the 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 spiraling, the self sabotage because of a common thing. Whether that's a slightly bad referee, whether that's a bad shot choice, in that moment, it's like a a resignation to going here. It goes again. Okay, so what you've highlighted is a scenario occurs, whether it be referee call, whether it be a bad shot whether it be whatever a scenario occurs and the athlete then goes oh this always happens right which essentially indicates to me that there's uh, a belief in there Uh, so always tends to be like uh, an absolute statement which means you believe something about the world as in you know every time I hit that shot I always mess up afterwards the game always goes downhill or every time a ref makes a bad call you know, it always goes downhill and I get frustrated, right? So you're connecting a scenario to a previous occurrence, which has occurred, and even a previous string of occurrences. And even if it always happens, let's make this the worst possible. Every time 
you hit this shot, you always, and all your history of all your games that you've ever played, it always goes wrong. Okay. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so what I would say is, what you're saying is that, one, that always happens. Um, and then two, because of that, uh, you're either putting yourself down, you may be putting the ref down or putting other people down, or you might be saying you can't tolerate this, or you might be saying that this is not entirely awful and terribly bad. So once we've got the demand identified, we then identify, are they putting, what are they putting down? What can they not tolerate? Um, or what are they saying is 100% awful, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've now got, this always happens. It's really bad. I'm shit. And uh, I can't stand this, okay? That would be all three demands based off of the one sort of belief of the world. Now, I would ask the question, is it helpful for you to think like that? Well, no, it's not. Because the emotions that that's producing is probably one of depression. And I say the emotion of depression, not clinical depression. Um, and th in that sense, what I'm what you're going to have is withdrawal um, and sort of sunkenness and like, you know, your, mm -hmm. your body language is going down. And then you're going to have thoughts of this is terrible, this is bad, and, you know, whatever thoughts that, that would produce. Now, the alternative to that would be if we sat down and challenged those thoughts, we go like, well, is there evidence to support this? There actually is in this case because we made it the worst possible scenario. It's always happened. Is it logical that these two events are connected? Absolutely not, right? The person would say that, you know, there's no reason to suggest that one event five minutes in or 10 minutes in affects all the other shots that you play. Sure. All right. And even if they did say it does because of some magical wizardry, is it helpful for them? And if it's not helpful for them, then that's the most powerful way to change your belief. So then you would go, right. Okay. So that's not helpful because it produces this depressed feeling, produces this sunkenness in your body language, produces these thoughts that you don't want. We change this to, I'd prefer to not hit that shot and not have the rest of my game go to shit. But I don't need to have that occur. I don't need to protect my game from going to shit. I'm okay with it going to shit. I'd much prefer it doesn't, but I'm okay mm. if it does. And what that means is that instead of feeling this technical term of depressed for an emotion, they can feel sad, right? Sad is, ah, oh, I'm a bit annoyed about this. The sad is more expressive and reaching out for help about it. Okay. And as sad is actually more communicative, right? So we get the the difference between a depressed emotion and a sadness emotion. One's functional, right? So the idea being that because it's more functional, they can reach out, they could do more things. They could say, well, I'm sad, I'm pissed off. What do I need to do in that scenario? I need to reset myself, right? And then that's where you bring in some behavioral strategy about resetting themselves and, and going at it and said, even if I'm going to lose this game, I'm going to lose it with the best effort and the best way possible, mm. right? Now, that's just slightly better than what they're currently at. But that's all it needs to be is it only needs to be slightly better because if you think about behavioral change, if you think about complexity and performance, everybody wants to see the avalanche, but nobody sees a snowflake that does it. So and true. If, so and true. If, if you're mm. skilled at understanding your beliefs and skilled at understanding how you think about things, um, you can essentially identify the snowflakes to create the change. And then all we need is one small success. And that whole pattern is, is broke. If that pattern's broke, then there's evidence that it can be broke again. And from that point, it's reinforcement and, and actually just the de development of that, that attitude and approach and that belief within that scenario where it is going shit will allow for potential performance improvement. 
Um, I think that's, I mean, I could talk for another hour and that. I know I could tell that's, that was awesome, but that was so cool, man. Like, yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. There's so many, so many little nuggets that I'm I'm looking forward to listening back to that. Um, so it's one of the questions I like to ask quite often on, on the show, um, common habits, common habits and traits of high performers. You've dealt with the highest performers. You yourself are a high performer. What do you, what, what do you see? What do you think they might be? You know, there's probably no one answer. You might think that's a bit of a fluffy question as it is. Um, but you know, I know athletes might be listening to this would be like, Oh, okay, well, these things like high performers tend to execute on those things on a regular basis. Does anything come to mind for you? The concept of, of high performance is defined and viewed by the what you stand beside. Some people view themselves as a high performer because they're on top of the pile of shit. Um, so I think part of being a high performer is actually to get off your pile of shit and you know you've called me a high performer I, I would debate that um but if you're saying that I'm a high performer well I view myself as a high performer in the pile of shit that is sports psychology <laughs> and my job yeah. is to look around at the other piles of shit and go what other pile of shit does something that I do better okay I like that yeah yeah because you know what I I'm let's just say I'm good enough or I'm good at uh sports psychology you know and that's me sort of drawing a line of of saying what I'm trying to say humbly with this example, right? Mm -hmm. But what's limiting me in my business is my ability to market. What's limiting me is my ability to produce content, ability to scale, things like that. Those are things other industries do better. So I look to those. So right. I suppose if you're an athlete or if you're another in another industry, like what do you what what does your industry feel at? And what industries do it better? So if you know if you're an athlete and you're like oh those guys those guys over there in weightlifting they lift a lot better than I do and I need to get better for my squash we'll go over to weightlifting and learn from them mm -hmm. so so look outside your pile of shit that you're on top of for a, a something that has a slightly higher peak in mm. an area that's important in your mm. pile and then go back to your pile so I think that's mm. what I would say I mean I could go into a lot more there but I think there's a there's a balance between getting better um, and being kind to yourself. And I think if you're actually a high performer, chances are you're either oblivious as to why you are or you're very not oblivious. And that's a painful process mm -hmm. of self-development and discovery. And I think navigating that is a very difficult thing for anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if does that make yeah, sense. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, really well said. I, I'm hearing lifelong learner comes to mind there. That you know you're looking outside of your your wheelhouse, your field of of how to how to move your ball down your field. I said that a little bit earlier, and and, and I like that. That's 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 powerful stuff. Um, listen, Hugh, there's probably another hundred rabbit holes we could go down. I thoroughly love this conversation. By the way, I was um super engaged, super in the flow. You were asking some really cool pushing questions back to me. So listen, thank you so much for this. But I always like to close with where can people find you? You know, um, I'm sure people that have listened might want to look for you. You've mentioned a few Instagram um bits. Some athletes listening to this might want to work with you directly. How do they get hold of you? Um, I, I am not accepting clients for the next two years, unfortunately, uh, because of my work with uh, Olympic and Paralympic athletes. So I am actually fully booked. Um, however, I do like to give out as best I can. Uh, so I do put up 
good content and ideas about psychology on my uh, YouTube and Instagram. Um, so I would suggest go and look there. And I, I would also suggest go and, and listen to any of the other podcasts that I've been on if that helps you. But please, actually, if you do want me to do something, do a video for you. Like I, I take requests. So people ask me topics and I'll do a video on a topic. Um um would be the best thing if you're an athlete if you're a coach or a person who works with people uh, i offer motivate training and motivational interviewing once a year and there's only about 20 places uh on that a year uh so that comes out of the a little be on the website podiumpsychology.com um so Amazing. yeah put, just google podium psychology and you'll find my instagram and my youtube that's yep. it really perfect well listen it sounds like you are a man in demand i feel honored to have got this hour with you today really chuffed to be able to do this Hugh, listen have a fantastic day and i look forward to maybe connecting and keeping in touch with you at some point in the future as well no worries um i look forward to our next conversation jesse uh it's been a pleasure all right